This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button question stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, It is time once again for the Evidence for Faith radio show on WIBG, live from Ocean City, New Jersey, and being streamed live around the world on WIBG.com. This is the radio show where we talk politics, science, religion, philosophy, all surrounding the view that Christianity is the best path forward for individuals, communities, and nations, because it provides happiness at the individual level and structure for nations that brings peace and prosperity to multiple billions of people. Welcome to the Evidence for Faith show. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And with us today, we have uh, author Kirk Hastings, and we're going to do uh, another interview with him on some excerpts from his book. And uh, Kirk, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Uh, I'd like to remind our listening audience that this show is funded in part by Grace Community Church in Waterford Works, uh, New Jersey. You can visit them at their website at aplaceforgrace.org. Uh, I'd also like to remind our listening audience that this show um, is streaming live, like Keith said, on WIBG.com. You can download uh, any of the previous podcasts that we've done. We have more than 90 at this point in time um, from either our website, which is Evidence for Faith. That's the number for evidenceforfaith.com. Uh, or you can go to iTunes and down- download individual podcasts as well. Um, and I wanted to... Uh uh, let you guys know, I don't think I told you that we got an email from one of our listeners who complimented us on the fact that we're willing to make corrections. And we corrected ourselves when we made a mistake on Buddhism. And uh, so we got a very nice email uh, thanking us for uh, being willing to put out the truth. And that's what we're here for, to put out the truth. We know sometimes we make misstatements, and but we're willing to correct them because the truth is what matters. And that's what your book is about, right, Kirk? What is truth? Yep. I hear you're going to give away one of these books, possibly? Yes, during the course of this program, so stay tuned. All right. So somebody just has to ask or answer a question. So what's the question, guys? What are we going to ask? If they can correctly answer this question, they get a free book. Well, today's show is going to be dealing with the science that actually would refute the possibility of evolution Mm -hmm. or spontaneous generation. And we're going to use the science that's been established in the form of laws uh, that we can easily use to counter any arguments that uh, the evolutionary camp is putting forth to hold their position. So let's make the question about that. Okay. I think that the question should be, what is the definition of either the first or second law of thermodynamics. Okay, so if if uh, somebody calls in with that answer to that question, then they get a free book, and we will ship a free it. signed copy. A free signed copy, even yeah. better. 
makes it worth more on eBay. I know. I want one. Actually, i got to get my copy signed by you because I have a collection of signed books. So it's I'm worth a dime it. more if it has my signature Is it? In it. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do I owe you a dime? No, I just made that up. All right. And by <laughs> the way, Keith, I, I wanted to remind our listening audience that this is our second anniversary. Ooh, We have now nice. been on the show complete two-year cycle going into our third year. And it's been a great run so far. It has been. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. I've got a quote here that actually kind of puts things into perspective about why we do this show. This is a quote from Charles Malick. It says, The problem is not only to win souls, but to save minds. If you win the whole world and lose the mind of the world, you will soon discover that you have not won the world. So we are here to win the hearts and minds of people to Christianity because it is a thinking man's religion. Okay. I have a uh, news item, Keith, that All I right. think would be a, uh, a perfect segue into today's show, and it has to do with uh, the chromosomes uh, when compared between chimp and human being. And we've all heard through the media, through the years, that uh, apes and man share about 98% of the same DNA. However, recent research has demonstrated that uh, about 30% of the Y chromosome which is peculiar to the mm-hmm. male species, in both chimps and human beings are different. So about 30% of that chromosome is different. The evolutionary camp uh, theorizes that somehow along the way, the chimp lost some genetic information, and that would explain the difference. And we know that mutations cause loss of information. And for years I've been arguing that it's more easy to argue that a, a chimp has devolved from a human being. Not that I believe that, it, that they have devolved. Right. But, but I at least scientifically, scientifically would make much more sense. Correct. So, yeah. uh, the, the so they're running around having to explain how come so much difference correct. in such a short, quote-unquote, short uh, evolutionary time frame. That's exactly correct. So they're a little bit perplexed about that, uh, yeah. but the people in the creation camp uh, are not. They right. believe that there's a common creator, not a common ancestor, as far right. as the genetic pool is concerned. Right. So it's very interesting. Yep. And I think also that maybe Kirk has done some research on this for his book, but I think the 98% comparison is actually only between some specific proteins and some parts of the DNA that create those proteins. So if you cherry pick the data, then yes, you can find some proteins where there's 98% difference in the DNA. But if you look at other things, we're actually more related to a chicken than we are to a uh, chimpanzee. And to show you how confused evolutionists are, I do have an example in my book of a scientist that came out within the past few years who actually has put forth the theory that he believes that uh, apes and chimps have evolved from human beings. The exact Uh, opposite of what other evolutionists believe. That would be like devolution, which is what I was going to earlier. Okay. Here's, here's so the that's other, interesting. The other flying ointment when it comes to this stuff, uh, when you're looking at uh, similarities, mm. uh, we use pig skin frequently in people who are badly burned. Okay, if there's not enough human banked skin to cover a severely burned individual, they'll use banked pig skin. They use pig valves. And why do they do that? For hearts, because yeah. phenotypically it most closely approximates the human tissue. So does that mean we evolved from pigs? Um, you know, I've been accused of having been evolved from a pig in the past. So, but the answer is no. Now, something else that that uh, is up in the air is that Mike and I have been invited to 
go on to an atheist podcast to be interviewed and to debate. Uh, so we are considering that right now. We haven't listened to many other podcasts, but there is pause for concern there because um, uh, it's, this is not a broadcast uh, event, so they don't, they're not under any regulations to control their language and their uh, real potty mouths, actually. Lots yeah. of uh, problems with that. So, so we may or may not go on that, but uh, we'll yeah. keep, you, keep you informed. We may have to have them on our show where we can have a little control over the language. Yeah, the, the FCC obviously uh, uh, controls uh, format and language. Uh, so we have to adhere to certain guidelines, and uh, the podcast format is a free-for-all. And so there, there is pause for concern when it comes to either name-calling or abusive language or cursing and swearing and so forth. So that, that is a, a concern. Well, let's get into our continuing interview with our perennial guest, Kirk Hastings, the author of uh, What is Truth? and available on Amazon. Um, so yes, I have a little news item this week, too. Tell us. Many of our listeners may have heard, uh, especially if you use the Internet at all, that uh, the physicist scientist Stephen Hawking came out with a statement this week, which was all over the media for a couple of days. His basic statement was that he said that he believes that the universe basically created itself and that God was not necessary for it. Okay. And I find that interesting based on what we've been talking about the past few weeks. We've been talking about the scientific laws, the indisputable scientific laws that have been in effect for more than 100 years now that say that spontaneous generation is impossible. The, like we said, the two laws of thermodynamics, I won't say what they are because I don't want to give the questions away, but anybody who's listened should know. Uh, that these scientific laws directly contradict what he said. And he, when he s- came out with that statement, the first thing it reminded me of was one of my favorite authors is Philip E. Johnson, who wrote the book Darwin on Trial, which I would recommend anyone who has any questions about uh, the media stance on evolution or creation or why they say certain things or defend certain things to read this book because it gives you all the politics behind the modern media obsession with evolution. And in his book, uh, Mr. Johnson repeatedly says, do not take every statement that a scientist says as a scientific statement because they're people like anyone else and they can make dumb statements just like the rest of us so i would caution the audience don't accept what mr hawking has said this week as a scientific statement it was a personal opinion and personally i would like to hear how he backs that statement up scientifically that the universe somehow created itself because i haven't heard that yet you know that's a a very interesting uh, commentary uh, kirk and one of the things that we're constantly accused of if you if you have a stance that's procreation as opposed to anti-evolution, one of the things that the uh, evolutionary camp will hurl at us is that we use junk science. Mm -hmm. They call creation science junk science. Well, today we're going to use scientific fact and let the the listening audience decide. Establish scientific laws. Right. We're going to let the the listening audience decide who's using junk science. Right. Now, in the last few weeks on this show, Keith, 
we've done a number of things just to, to set up this whole argument. And specifically in the last show, we did uh, a number of scientific uh, uh, forays that would support creationism versus evolution. And these included the Miller-Urey experiment and how the prebiotic soup is really an untenable mix as far as being the forerunner of all life. We talked about uh, flowering plants and uh, sexual reproduction and how science still can't explain that. We talked about homology. We talked about uh, punctuated equilibria. We talked about Hearst, uh, I'm sorry, Ernst Haeckel's um, um, drawings, his um, mm -hmm. ontogeny. The embryo, yep, right, I remember ontogeny, that was last week. Right. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny and, and how the, the drawings were a fraud. We talked about uh, modern uh, breeding experiments. Uh, we talked about um, uh, the peppered moth um, example that Darwin used, mm -hmm. um, and also the uh, Galapagos finches and the beak the beak length depending on uh, you know the, the the drought versus rainy seasons. Right. And we also talked about mutant fruit flies. Now, one of the things that we're going to get into with respect to the scientific method is the problem that evolutionists have with their lack of testability. And that's a pretty bold claim, Kirk. You have a whole section of your book mm -hmm. dedicated to the lack of testability. Tell us why that's such an important concept in this day and age and how it affects uh, the actual argument of science when it comes to evolution versus creation. Well, I'd say that almost anybody in our listening audience, at least those who have gone to school, were probably taught in science or biology class uh, the definition of science, which is observation, experiment, and testability. It has to be repeatable in a laboratory in order to be considered a scientific law. Uh, this idea that evolution, uh, when we say evolution, we're talking about Darwinian evolution, which uh, at its core says that all species of life that exists today originally came from an original living cell that evolved into many different kinds of life. Uh, in other words, an original species branched out into many other species of animals. Well, I point out in my book that this basic idea of evolution has never been scientifically proven, that one species of creature has ever changed or metamorphosized into another species. We have no scientific evidence whatsoever to show that that's ever taken place. Now, when we talk about this, we have to be careful, though, because um, the atheist is going to say, oh, yes, we have, and then they're going to list some example of some new species that has been discovered um, that didn't exist before. Um, so you have to be careful about the terminology. Mm -hmm. Species, but, you know, species can be um, a different colored uh, moth, you know, or a bird that has a, a red throat instead of uh, a black throat. And in that sense, they're a different species. But what we're talking about are different kinds of animals. Right. There's, there's never been a case where a bird uh, uh, species changed into a lizard species. Right. That or kind or of vice thing. versa. Or right. vice versa, yeah. Right. The so. whole story of, of evolution as far as uh, biological history that an amphibian changed into uh, a land creature and then that changed into a dinosaur and then they changed into a mammal and then that changed into a human being, they have no scientific evidence that any of these different types of creatures ever changed into another creature. There's no, what I'm trying to right. say is there's no 
solid transitional forms. Every once in a while, someone will come out and say, oh, we found a transitional form. Here's the missing link for so-and-so between birds and dinosaurs, for instance. But then they do further research and they find out, well, actually, that's not quite true. We found out that these things are actually different animals. Right. And one of the other problems that paleontologists have when they look at the fossil record, fossil record is full of examples of extinction, but there's no evidence that there's any new created life forms right, or right. life forms that have evolved from one into another. Right. So We're the missing still waiting link, for a higher form of human being. It hasn't shown up yet. Yeah, the missing link has never uh, been found. Well, actually, I'd say Christianity is the higher form of human being. The well, spiritual that's man. That's true. Actually, you could might, uh, in a certain sense, you could consider Jesus Christ that if you, in a religious sense. Yeah, he would be the missing link, the link between God and man. There you yes. go. There you so go. I like that. But anyway, I have a quote from a paleontologist, a big shot, actually. Uh, his name is Dr. Colin Patterson, and he's the senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History in London. And he said this, It's easy to make up stories of how one form gave rise to another, but such stories are not part of are not part of science, for there is no way of putting them to the test. So this really goes right. back to the testability of the theory of evolution. And remember, folks, it is a theory. It was released as a theory in 1859 when Darwin wrote his book, The Origin of the Species, um, and it still remains a theory, even though it's taught in schools and is alluded to in the public media, that it's a fact. It's foregone conclusion, and it's mm -hmm. not. No, it isn't. They've never been able to change one species of creature into another species in a laboratory. So it is not, there is no test where they can reproduce this in a laboratory and say, okay, this is definitely a scientific fact. Uh, Paul Ehrlich, who's also a, a professor of biology at Stanford University, um, said this. He said, Darwinian evolution is outside of empirical science. No one can think of ways in which to test it. No. And Darwin himself said that unless paleontologists find supporting evidence, then my theory is going to be futile. It's going to be dismantled. He fully expected to find evidence in the future of transitional fossils and things in the fossil record. But in the 150 years since he wrote The Origin of Species, not one has been found. Right. Very good. All right. Now, you uh, next in your book, you talk about information versus matter and energy. Yes. What is that about? Well, we could go to atheist and evolutionist Richard Dawkins, which I'm sure everybody has heard of. Yeah. He has, uh, in the past, he's admitted the following. This is a direct quote from him. He said, There is enough information capacity in a single human cell to store the entire Encyclopedia Britannica all 30 volumes of it, three or four times over. Now, the logical question is, what is this information that he's talking about? Right. Well, information is something that comes from an intelligent source. It's not physical. We're talking about the information in your DNA, for example, is not something you can pick apart a piece of DNA and say, oh, there it is. It, it's right. It's not... Yeah, a physical thing. So it doesn't fit into the category of either matter or energy. Right. Yeah, and science can test for matter and it can measure energy, heat released or, or heat absorbed, but it can't measure for information. 
Right. But okay. we know that there's information in DNA, and we know that your brain has information. Yes. But it can't be measured. Another way we could say this is if you pick up a book and you start reading it, okay, you have the physical book, you have the physical pages made out of paper, you have the words on the page that are ink, but the information you're absorbing from those words is not a physical thing. That's right. something that your intelligent mind is processing from what you're reading on that page. And that is not transferable uh, in the way that evolutionists say that evolution happened, right. for something to evolve, it has to be either matter or energy to evolve. The right. information does not evolve. It has to come from an intelligent source. Right. So the natural question is, where does all this information in our DNA come from? It's interesting. I, I know that uh, Philip Johnson is one of your um, favorite uh, authors, and he wrote uh, another book, uh, after defeating Darwinism, and it was called Darwinism, Defeating Darwinism by Opening Minds. In Another excellent book by him. And uh, he said this. He said, uh, and this uh, this has to do with the so-called information that's, that's apart uh, from matter or energy. Life consists not just of matter, which is chemicals, but also of matter and information, mm -hmm. and that the information is not reducible to matter, but it's a different kind of stuff altogether. And the theory of life thus has to explain not just the origin of matter, but also the independent origin of the information. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where did the information come from? That's the question. And we It was Philip Johnson that first made me understand this idea about information versus matter and energy, because he, he defines it excellently in his books. Mm. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And we are interviewing Kirk Hastings, who is the author of the book, What is Truth?, where he goes through the evidences for the Christian religion and starting with collapsing the worldview of evolution and showing how it is false and does not give the answers that we need to find out what is truth. Well, Kirk, how, how do you frame this whole argument in the context of the information that's stored in DNA? I mean, obviously, the information that we have, uh, whether we're humans or if we're elephants or giraffes or any other creature for that matter, what, what's the big deal? What's the big argument here with uh, information relative to uh, evolution versus creation? Well, for instance, the gene is a package of information. It's not an object. It's not a solid well, thing that you can I, put your hand, fingers I'm, on. I'm going to argue that it is a chemical object. There are base yes. pairs, A, T, G, and C, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. The agency that contains the information is a physical object. Okay, just like the book that yes. you have in your hand. Right. But the information that's in there is phenomenally complex, as many as 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica in each cell. Yes. Okay, and that's the information for the entire genome of that creature. So the information is part of the chemical nature of that gene pool, but yes. it's not something It's an that indispensable part. And it, but it's not something that can evolve. No, because it's not a physical object. Only physical objects evolve. Well, what if, what if the, 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 the base pairs got all jumbled up? What would happen? Uh, the base pairs of, uh, of DNA, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. These are holding blocks of DNA. You would probably come up with a very messed up individual. 
okay. that wouldn't live very long. All right. So if we did the same thing with your book and we jumbled up all the words, the information right. would be completely scattered. You'd have a book full of nonsense. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Well, I, I can understand that. That's easy enough. Mm-hmm. All right. So next in your book, you talk about transposition. Tell us about that. What, what's, the, what's that about? This is one that's always driven me nuts. Whenever I'm sitting watching TV and I'm watching one of these nature documentaries or, you know, these, these programs about scientific history and how animals evolved and all, they, they always make these statements like, like, for instance, in my book I say, uh, the giraffe evolved its long neck in order to be able to reach the leaves at the very top of tall trees. <laughs> it's like, okay, how did it do that? They never quite explain that. How did the giraffe tell itself, okay, I need a long, longer neck, guys, to do this. How about, you know, let's make a longer neck. Well, I, thought, I thought that science disproved that ecological changes cannot induce a change in the genome that then gets passed off onto its offspring. No, they can't. Even if... For some reason, the giraffe were able, in a fantasy world, were able to say, okay, I want a longer neck, and it could give itself a longer neck, it wouldn't be able to pass that trait on to its children, because that's not a natural feature of the giraffe, or right. it wouldn't be in the case we're talking about. But isn't, isn't that a, that's the, like, the Lamarckian view of evolution, and isn't that a kind of passe now? I mean, I don't think anybody except... The Communist Party has uh, supported Lamarckian evolution. That's quite true. Now we say that it's genetic mutations. It's not how animals have somehow been able to adapt themselves to their surroundings and with some mysterious process that we don't know about. Now they're saying, okay, a change took place in the DNA or the genetics of the creature, a mutation in other words, right. that changed it into for instance, having a longer neck. But the problem with that is mutations are not passed on to children. For instance, if you have a child who is born with only one arm instead of two arms, that's a genetic mistake. If that child has children, unless, you know, of course it's not impossible that it could have another child with one arm, but it probably will not because that's not a trait that it's going to pass on to the children because its genes don't say I'm going to reproduce a child with one arm. The gene is right. still a human gene that says humans have two arms and two legs. Right. So in other words, a mistake is not, a, a mutation is not passable to the next generation. Right. So, so in other words, uh, in instead of saying that every mutation that ever happens would automatically get passed on and if therefore if it's good those children or those uh, descendants would live and if it's bad right. those descendants would die what you're saying is that um, the vast majority of mutations that are pa that happen to one generation even if they're good even if they help that animal to survive that animal within uh, mate and have more offspring, that does not guarantee, in fact, it's very unlikely that that mutation would be transferred on. Is that what, that's yes. what you're saying? And, then, and that's yeah, because so. the offspring has two sets of genes right. from each parent. Right. Um, now, so the whole thing about natural selection um, 
has this delaying. It's it's possible that it could be passed on, but it but it's likely that it's not going to be passed on. The odds against something like that being passed on are, are astronomical. So so not only do you need millions and millions of years, now you need trillions and trillions of years. And you would and need trillions and trillions of these mutations in order for, for instance, a dinosaur to evolve into a woolly mammoth. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Right. Yeah. Well, get, getting back to the uh, mutations, I mean, what I see in the science of medicine is that most genetic defects that we see in human beings cause either disease, death, or deformity. So provided that that child would survive into adulthood with mm-hmm. the capacity to reproduce, uh, the question is, can they reproduce? Um, societal norms would probably try to stop any reproductive effort on, on that individual's part. Right. Uh, but if they did, in fact, have the capacity to reproduce, it doesn't necessarily imply that that genetic problem would be passed on because the um, offspring could have the other parents' uh, genetic traits. Right. There's a there's a TV show on the Science Channel where each episode they're looking for some genetic advance in the human genome. And so they have these people with amazing abilities. And one of the people that they documented was this fellow who has an incredible ability to withstand cold. And they put him through all kinds of tests that no other human being could survive in this cold conditions, you know, dunk him into into ice water and things and him tolerating it for hours, whereas anybody else would be convulsing within minutes Mm -hmm. and uh, things like that. And they're showing that, you know, he's uh, they're looking for that genetic difference. But what you're saying is that just because that that person has a genetic uh, difference that allows him this ability, say, to withstand cold, does not mean that his children will have the same ability. No, because that we're to, we're talking about uh, in terms of biology a physical mistake. We're not talking about a genetic um, tendency. So there's really, in other words, what I'm trying to say is there's no gene to pass that trait on to the next generation. It, it was an aberration in this man, and it's not contained in his DNA that's going to say, okay, my kids are going to be as, you know, uh, resistant to cold as I am. There, there's no way to pass that trait on to his children. Gotcha. Well, uh, let me see if I can uh, summarize this this whole uh, concept. Uh, we started talking about Lamarckism, and that's, that's actually attributed to uh, a French naturalist by the name of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck who lived in the 1700s, and he came up with the concept in 1809, uh, and it's his concept of uh, Lamarckism is often confused with a theory of biological evolution, um, but it's different. Yes, Lamarckism states that the acquired traits are passed on to an animal's offspring. That is, environmentally predetermined traits are passed on. We know that that's not the case. Okay, Darwinism theorizes that the animal's biological makeup is determined not by the traits uh, acquired along the way, but by genetic mutation. Now, in order for these traits to be passed on genetically by mutation, you'd have to have both both parents with both sets of genes having the identical mutation to be something that's passed on. That is provided that the offspring was healthy enough. Remember, genetic mutations cause disease, death, and deformity. So if the offspring has that trait from both parents, then that would be expressed in all ensuing generations, provided that each offspring had the same genetic trait with its uh, um, mate. Right. We should also point out the fact that science has since disproved Lamarckism. That's correct. That this doesn't happen. There's no scientific evidence 
to show that acquired traits can alter an animal's genetic makeup and then be passed on to succeeding generations. So they've basically done away with that idea. All right. So now all we're left with is accidental genetic mutations which change a creature and somehow, which evolutionists don't explain, are passed on to succeeding generations. Okay. So uh, then next in your book you talk about the uh, first law of thermodynamics. So what's the first law of thermodynamics got to do with evolution? Well, first of all, uh, the first law of thermodynamics is also called the law of energy conservation. Okay. Which means that matter and energy can change from one to the other, but they are never created or destroyed. There's still the same amount of either matter or energy in the universe at all times. So if I take a quantity of hydrogen and create a bomb and release that energy into the universe, right? the amount of matter and energy still remains the same in the universe. Yes. Perhaps in the form of a lot of heat and a lot yes. of destruction. But that, that amount is constant. Yes. And this is actually the, the theory or the law that Einstein based his E equals MC squared. Sure. Because it's all there. Right. Now, the thing that's curious is that the universe is full of examples whereby we can take matter and create a whole bunch of energy from it, you know, whether it's burning gasoline or mm. oil or, or atomic energy. But there's no instance that I know of. And if somebody else knows of an example, please call. You can call us, by the way, at 398 1020 okay there's no example that i know of in in science whereby we can take energy and create matter now of course you can take a lot of ingredients of matter and and use energy to create another substance but i know of no pure process where you can take pure energy and create matter hmm, that's a good one i it never only comes, thought about that it before. only comes from what i believe is creator and i don't care if you call it the big bang or what you know there had to be a beginning point. And also, according to the first law of thermodynamics, what Stephen Hawking just said, if I understand him correctly, is what he said is impossible. How could the universe then have created itself out of nothing? The, you know, it's so like, where did the original matter and energy come from right. if matter and energy, are the level of matter and energy is constant and can't be created or destroyed then how did it create itself to begin with? Mm -hmm. right. You have to have some kind of an outside agent that acted to start this process because matter and energy could not have done it on their own. Right, and this, this leads us right into the second law of thermodynamics. And tell us, tell us about that, Kirk. Well, this basically means that if you leave your house alone for six months and don't do anything to it, what are you going to end up with? A mess. <laughs> a lot a mess. of dust, a lot of dirt. Well, lot, lot of well according to evolution, it should be a better, stronger, cleaner house than when you started out. Okay. Well, but a house doesn't reproduce, so they're going to no. What it doesn't reproduce. Say. Okay, there's a flaw in my theory here. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's it, it. The the law is what it says. Uh, if it's, you it's have basically saying what you were just talking about about the energy and the, uh, released when an atomic bomb goes off. It's saying that the amount of energy in the universe is steadily decreasing. Well, it, to summarize this for the, for the uh, listening audience, you go from a state of higher order to a state of randomness. That's what 
entropy means, and that's what the second law of thermodynamics yes. is all about. So what it tells us is that the universe is unwinding, that energy is being released as systems come to a grinding halt. All and natural processes have a tendency toward decay and disintegration. Correct. And you know what? That, that actually goes along with uh, 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 extinction when you apply this to life forms. We all have heard on these science programs that, you know, the polar bear is going to be extinct or, you know, the white lion is going to be extinct or right. whatever. There's, there's multiple, multiple examples of uh, in the animal kingdom of species extinction. It's already done. It's Disappearing. Done They're done. Right. Yes. And we have endangered species. Right. And they're all in, the, they're all in the, uh, the list of things where they get laws passed to protect those species, whether right. it's the bald eagle or whatever. Uh, but there's there's no evidence whatsoever of new species being created, just extinction. And this goes along with the, the second law of thermodynamics, yes, it doesn't is. it? Yes, it is. It's saying that the tendency of the universe is to lose species, not create them. And that's what we're doing. We're constantly seeing species go out of existence. But when's not the last time you saw a new animal show up? Right. You know, of course, they find animals, you know, in the, the jungles of lost. Southeast Asia that right. they didn't know existed that were there all the time. They just didn't know it. But what I'm saying is, when did a new animal just pop into existence last week that wasn't there before? You never hear about that. So if somebody wants you to believe in the Big Bang and the whole evolutionary process arriving, you know, arriving at man, right. you have to realize that they're asking you to suspend your belief in the first and second laws of thermodynamics. You would have to. Yeah, exactly, because the universe is actually winding down. We know that there was a beginning, and there will be an end, and right now we're winding down. Our sun in our solar system is not going to last forever. It's winding down. It's, it's, its energy is being depleted mm -hmm. uh, day after day. Uh, but the evolutionists are going to insist that the exact opposite is true. They say that throughout history, their simplicity has always evolved into something that's more and more and more complex. Well, this flies in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. One of the statements that I make a number of times in my book is that the simple cannot create the complex. And science has shown us that over and over again. And yet evolution tries to tell us to believe exactly the opposite. Well, a British astronomer said this. His name is Arthur Eddington. He said this. If the theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There's nothing for it but to collapse in the deepest humiliation. And he uses the word collapse, which goes along with entropy, which I find very fascinating. <laughs> yep. Great choice of words. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And we have with us today Kirk Hastings, author and apologist. And we're discussing his book, What is Truth? So, Kirk, uh, what's next? What's next? You're, we're in this section where we are talking about the evidences against the theory of evolution. And actually, last week, I wasn't here, but I heard the radio show. You were challenged by uh, one of our listeners who, who likes to be known as the friendly atheist. <laughs> and he said, well, how come you're only presenting evidence against evolution why don't you present positive evidence for your own view and this is what we're doing is evidence against evolution but in my mind sometimes that's the appropriate thing it's not that there isn't evidence for intelligent design in fact 
we had the author of Signature in the Cell on the show, and that book is all about the positive evidence for intelligent design. So apparently he missed that episode. But sometimes you're in a, a situation where uh, it's easier to uh, a good defense is uh, you know is an offense sometimes. Mm-hmm. And after he asked that question, I was thinking about the situation where maybe you get arrested for a murder, and in your trial they're presenting all this information about how you killed somebody. But in, the truth is that you were asleep at home in bed. Now. What are you going to do? Are you going to go to court and and prove that you were asleep in bed? A little difficult to do. That would get you off the hook if you could do it. If you could do it. If your wife or someone was there and said, yeah, I saw him sleeping. What if nobody saw you? You were were just there. Then you've got a problem. You've got a problem. (laughs) What would you do? You would attack the evidence against you. You'd show how... Uh, there's no fingerprints. You'd show how the gun that they found didn't even actually belong mm-hmm. to you. You'd go th- at their evidence, and that's what we're doing right. today. We're attacking the the evidence for evolution, not because that's all we've got, but because a lot of times it's so easy to show how ridiculous it is Yes, and how wrong it is. And also, a few weeks ago, when we started this series on my book, we started it with a quote by a scientist who said that there, when it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities, spontaneous generation or creation. And we've been building on that basis since then to show that spontaneous generation is indeed scientifically possible, which, once we prove that, leaves us with the only other alternative, creation. Right. If someone can come up with a third version of how the universe came about, I'd like to hear it, because so far I, I have never heard a viable third alternative. Right. Good. Well, let's, let's get back to uh, the genetics of life, Kirk. Um, we both feel that uh, uh, evolution could not have happened and that there is somehow an information system that's built into all life forms in the form of DNA, which by itself is very, very highly complex. Yes. And we've also touched upon the fact that each offspring of its like kind has two parental sets of DNA, which have to intertwine and create that, that new creature, that new being. Mm-hmm. So what, what, is the, what is the other law here that we're going to appeal to that would show that evolution could not have happened and that creation is more uh, likely to have happened? Okay, that leads right into the next point in my book. We're at number 15 in 16 Problems with Darwinian Evolution. And number 15 is called the Law of Biogenesis, which in layman's terms means like begets like. In other words, if you have a cow, the offspring is going to be a cow. If you have a dog, the offspring is going to be a dog. If you have whatever, you can't you don't get something out of nothing. So anymore. this, and I'd like to rev- remind the listening audience, this is a law. It's a scientific law. This is a fact. Yes. There, there's no exceptions. So this law basically refutes spontaneous, energi- uh, uh, spontaneous generation because the information system that's in place in DNA, both parental strands of DNA, are utilized to create the offspring or the progeny. So how... Ha- 
this law came out of, of research into the idea of spontaneous generation by a number of scientists back in the 16, 17, and 1800s, including Louis Pasteur, which I'm sure most people know his name, where they set about to find out, does spontaneous generation happen or doesn't it? And they proved that it absolutely does not happen. Right. So the result of that research was the law of biogenesis, that like begets like. You have to start with something in order to end up with it. They had the idea that some people believe that decaying meat spontaneously generated flies. Well, they proved that that does not happen, that in order to get a fly, a fly has to begin, you have to get a fly from a fly. You can't get mm. a fly from decaying meat or anything else. All right, so let me, let me uh, put it to you this way, Kirk. The theory of Darwinian evolution says that the first simple life form somehow generated itself from non-living chemicals. That's it. So this is essentially scientifically impossible if you're going to frame it in the context of the law of biogenesis. Right. It's absolutely impossible. And there is no exception to this rule? Well, that's what evolutionary scientists say with questions like this. They say, well, conditions were different back then and this the first living cell was an exception. But scientifically prove that there was an exception that's what they can't do they have not come up with the exception yet or how it happened all right well let me Excellent. let me let me um take it one step further just a devil's argument if you will um if if you have a cell that somehow miraculously spontaneously generated from the primordial soup you'd have to have yet another cell spontaneously generate in the perfect proportions with the same genetic information for each cell to eventually evolve into a male-female of that species to then sexually reproduce. Yes. And the odds against that are astronomically small so or, or huge. I so mean, large to make it impossible. Yeah. Okay. Now, what would make more sense, actually, is if most or all living creatures reproduced asexually. In other words, they didn't need an opposite sex to reproduce, and there are some, are some simple creatures that reproduce that way. But if evolution were true, it would seem to me that almost all creatures would reproduce that way. That would be the likely way for ev evolution right. to do it. Because it's a lot Not easier. Not the way it's, it's done with right. male and female. Right. Absolutely true. Yep. I was just trying to tie that into the law of biogenesis, like begets like. Right. And you're right. Um, may, maybe we've had some simple single-celled um, uh, spores of sorts that, that can do that sort of thing. But certainly no very complex, simple life forms. No yes. complex life form as we would know it. No. Um, well, it also reminds me of a cute story. Uh, one of my favorite shows when I was growing up was The Waltons, and the little red-haired girl in that. I can't think of her name off the top of my head. Um, she uh, one of the scenes in the early episodes was that she was talking to her little brother, and they're talking about they're gonna when they grow up and they're they're gonna have kids, and the little girl says. No, I don't want to have kids. I want to have puppies. <laughs> and, of course, the little boy laughs at her for that. And it, it's a cute scene, but it's really, there's some profound truth there that it is not possible for human beings to have puppies or anything else but little human beings. I think her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you're right. Does that right. sound right? Yes. Okay. I have to get yeah. my DVDs out and yeah, watch we, that show again. We used to watch that, too. It's a great show, great family programming. Yes. So anyway, this this leads us into uh, another um, informational topic, if you will, 
the sixteenth evidence against this is it, and this has to do with the human mind this or consciousness. <laughs> yeah, which also leads us in. We're going to touch on the concept of the human soul as yes. well. So this is another form of information system that could not have possibly evolved. Yes. In fact, I remember reading a scientific quotation relative to the mind, the, the human brain, and it was called glorified matter. Now, I found that a peculiar choice of words using the word glorified because interesting because it, it implies a glorious creator. It uh, reminds you of religion, doesn't it? A little bit. Yes. So how is the fact that they're that we are conscious beings, how is that evidence against evolution? Well, first of all, the fact that we do have the, a conscious mind, uh, I go into in my book how a number of scientists have been doing research in recent years, and it, more and more of, of them are accepting the, the fact that the physical brain and our minds are two separate things. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're not the same. In other words, um, if you do, if somebody does brain surgery on somebody and you have to take out part of your brain, which they do sometimes, mm -hmm. um, I understand that there are certain types of uh, diseases mm -hmm. that they can take out a little part of the brain and it will actually help to alleviate the symptoms of that disease. But the, the question we have to ask ourselves here is, okay, if the mind and the brain are the same thing, if you take part of the brain out, aren't you removing part of the individual? Are they still the same person afterwards? The obvious answer is yes, they're, this, they're the same person. Um, and also you could go further and say, well, if you lose an arm and a leg or whatever in an accident, are you less of who you were before the accident than you are now? And, of course, most people would say, well, no, it's the same person. But that strongly implies that the human, what we like to call the soul or the, the basis of the individual is mm. something that is separate from our physical bodies. Right. Mm. They're right. two different things. And there have been a, a number of experiments, which I describe some of them briefly in my book in recent years, where the evidence is strongly pointing in that direction, that the mind and the physical brain are two different things. Well, I yeah, think we've got time for that if you want to discuss yeah, some I'll, of I'll those. do that. There, there was a classic experiment that was done whereby uh, electrodes were put into a human mind, and they could cause muscles to twitch and the arm to contract or the leg to contract. Right. But not once were they ever, ever able to create a human thought or a dream or some other process that's ascribed to a higher form of consciousness they can't make you think probes. something that's correct yes well i thought that they've done experiments where they put probes into the brain and then people have recalled i remember i'm i'm walking down the <coughs> pathway with grandma and in a field and uh and that they've actually recalled memories of childhood so vivid that the person thought that it was actually happening really i haven't heard that yeah Okay, so so yeah. But apparently, there still are still the memory. Uh, w what is that? Is that, you know, where did where does that come from? I mean, the conscious, what we call the conscious, rational individual. Where can I pick the brain apart and find that? You you can't. It's not a physical entity. Right. You're not going to open up the brain and there's grandma. Right. So even though or I you, have, or you can't open up that individual's brain and see that thought, that memory of his grandmother in the brain. 
Right, right. It takes a mind to develop the, to have the information of, oh yeah, I saw, I, I saw a tree and I saw grandma. It's mm-hmm. the individual's mind, their consciousness that uh, can see that, not the not When the they put you the on an operating table, they can't uh, dissect your brain and see what's in there. You have to tell, tell someone exactly what's on your right. mind for yeah. them to know. They can't find it in your brain and say, oh, he's thinking about eating uh, spaghetti for lunch right now. I can see it right there. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd like to sum this up a little bit, if you will, in the, in the context of a uh, Hollywood production called The Right Stuff. Now, if anybody saw that movie maybe 10, 15 years ago, it's an older movie, but uh, worth looking at. Uh, it chronicles Chuck Yeager, who holds the uh, um, uh, record for speed uh, flying an airplane. Okay, He mm-hmm. broke... Uh, uh, Mach 2 uh, at one time and really pushed the envelope when it came to uh, aeronautical uh, engineering and so forth, uh, not only in, in test flights but also in space. Uh, but he uh, chose not to become part of the NASA group that would be the first seven Mercury astronauts. Okay. And <clears throat> if you recall, the first um, space capsule that was sent into orbit had a chimpanzee in it. Uh huh. Okay. And um, I'm old he, enough to remember that. When he was being wow. interviewed by the, the press, when Chuck Yeager was being interviewed by the oh, press. I thought you were going to say the chimpanzee was no, being interviewed by no, the no. press. When Chuck Yeager was being interviewed by the press, he had a newfound um, uh, respect for these supposed astronauts, which he chose not to be a part of. And he said, you realize that that, that chimpanzee had no idea that he was sitting on a candle that could explode at any time. All he did was go up for the ride and came down on the ride without any conscious forethought or right. insight as to the extreme gravity of the situation. Or fear. Or fear, exactly. Whereas the astronauts that uh, eventually piloted the Mercury Project all had that understanding. Sure. Realizing that they could be vaporized in an instant. Right. right. And unfortunately, the people in the Challenger space shuttle mm-hmm. were. Yeah, and that was only eight years later, actually. nineteen. Um, I'm sorry, no, it was much later. Uh, I was thinking of uh, the space capsule that that blew up on the the launch right. pad in 1968, yeah. Yeah. white and chaffy and so forth. So you'll be interested then in one another experiment that I know about, where they showed using PET scanners that the conscious mind can change the brain. So you can rewire your brain by being given new ideas, new concepts, and your mind that which is separate from your brain can rewire your brain, hmm. which is impossible in an evolutionary situation where the mind, you know, our consciousness is sort of this artificial, um, you know, chemical result of the activities going on in the brain. The brain would then therefore be the cause of the mind and in control of the mind and can change the way you think. In fact, what we find through PET scanners is just the opposite, that the bra- the mind your conscious self actually controls your brain and can tell the brain to rewire itself and learn new skills and recover from strokes and overcome things like OCD. So That sounds like at one, what they at one time used to call biofeedback, where uh, you could mentally yes, lower yeah, sure your body temperature or reduce pain or whatever simply by the power of your mind. Yep. Well, if I, if I could just wrap this up quickly, Keith, uh, Darwinists truly have no explanation for the existence of the mind, which consists of thoughts and beliefs, feelings, free will, and choices. 
okay? Right. They, these cannot have evolved. This is an information system which is very complex. That is the mind. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I am Dr. Michael Arrakis. And thanks to Kirk Hastings for being here today to tell us about his book. And we're gonna, he's taking a break from our show for a couple of weeks, and then we'll have him back on to talk more about his book. So join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe in the truth of Christianity. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's the truth.